I wonder this morning if I were to ask you, and I won't, I won't ask you to do this um, out loud, but if I were to ask you, what, were, what are some of the most influential sermons that you've ever heard? I, we, we had the freedom this morning, I guess, not to pick one of Pastor Bill's since he's not here, right? Uh, but you would have to pick one of mine or Scott's since we're both here. But on a serious note, think through all the times that you've heard the word taught. And think through all the, all the sermons, the teaching, just the, the primary importance that we place upon it as Baptists. That the, the preaching of the word is central to our life. The teaching of the word is central to the health of the body. And think through the sermons you've heard. What, what, what times have you sat under the teaching of the Word and, and God has just used that in an amazing way? Perhaps in a, in a way that, that you would have never expected. You came and, and you blindly walked into a sanctuary one morning, perhaps as a, a, a lost man or a lost woman, and the last thing you expected was to encounter the grace of God and through the power of the Word, your life was radically changed. Certainly, we would think through if we said, okay, well, how does that compare historically, or, or what do you think some of the most historic or influential sermons to ever be preached were? Certainly, we would, we would think through sermons by, by perhaps Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in, a hand, in the Hands of an Angry God, a, a sermon that, that we study even in literature classes. I, I read that in, in, a, in a public high school growing up, an influential sermon. What about sermons by, certainly, Martin Luther would have had some powerful, moving sermons as he led out in the Protestant Reformation. All the, all the reformers, you go through uh, the Whitfields and, and, and Wesley and, and all these men who, who certainly went out and they proclaimed God's word in, in amazing ways. And I wonder if we would come in and also include Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as we trace back through and we think about the power of the spoken word and the power of teaching when our Lord himself sits down and he instructs and he teaches and he preaches. What a moving time it must have been. When, when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, he's been tempted for 40 days by Satan and he, he comes out and he, he's resisted that temptation through the, through the word and through the power of the spirit. And he comes out from the wilderness and he begins his public ministry and, and as he does, he, he's teaching and he's preaching he calls his first disciples, and, and those people are gathering around, them, around him. And, and as he goes throughout Galilee, more and more and more people come in. They start following, and they're, 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 they're coming in behind him, and they, they hear he's coming into a town, so they meet him there. They want to hear the teaching of, of this man, Jesus. And so the crowds just become more and more numerous until one day he looks out and he sees how large the crowd is and he walks up on a hill or, or a small mountain. He walks up to the top of it and he sits down. And scripture says in, in Matthew 5, 1, we'll read in just a moment, that, that his di disciples gathered around him. And he sat down and he began preaching. He began teaching them. And that's what we know as a Sermon on the Mount. If you were to just read through it, it, it may take you about 10 minutes. So we're, we're pretty certain that, that he probably taught more than that. We probably don't have the the exact manuscript of what he delivered. We've probably got the sermon notes, the high points. Of these are the, the things that our Lord taught. These are the things that, according to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, that he preserved and knew that we needed down throughout the ages of the church. And so now we have this sermon, 
And I want us to pick up this morning, our, our text that we're going to study today is Matthew 5, 13 through 16. But for the sake of context and seeing how it flows in, in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to start in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 this morning as we hear the word of the Lord. Matthew records this. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, the disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men. In such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Join me in prayer. God, we ask that you would open your word to us. Speak, O Lord, as we examine your holy word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. This morning I want to give you four words from this text, in Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16, four words that will help us understand and look at what is Jesus teaching here in these three verses. Here's the first word. The first word is identity. Identity. Jesus has just, start, just got out of talking about the Beatitudes, and we've, we've heard sermons on the Beatitudes. We, we read them. Some of you have them posted on the wall in your home. Beatitudes that, where, where Christ talks about what does it look like, that, that kingdom living is, is very different from what we might expect. The, the, the theme, really, of the Sermon on the Mount is, is this is the nature of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like, and this is what it looks like for those of us who are God's people to live in the kingdom. This is what kingdom living looks like. And he's gone through and he says, listen, those that you might not think are blessed, they're blessed. Those that the world might say, man, what, what, what is going on in their lives? He says, God, God is, they are blessed for that, and they will be blessed. And so he's coming out of that, and now he says, he expresses a very important truth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And that you, that you is restrictive. It expresses our identity. It's emphatic. It says, you only. Now, who did he say in, in verse 1 of chapter 5 gathered around him? Do you remember? The, the disciples, right? It said his disciples gathered around him. The, the sermon was taught, it was preached to his followers. There's no call to repentance in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he's, he's teaching his people. 
And so he's calling it, he says, this is who you are. You are salt. You are light. Those of you who are poor in spirit, those of you who mourn, those of you who are gentle, those of you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those of you who are merciful, those of you who are pure in heart, those of you who are peacemakers, those of you, those of you who are persecuted, you are salt and you are light. You are these things. He's stating a fact. He's not giving a command, is he? He's not saying, hey, you go and, and be this. You go and do that. He's not doing that, is he? he? He's stating a fact. It's not an option. He's not asking us, hey, would you just be salt in the earth? Would you, would you just be a light? Please, people of grace, you're, you're my followers. Can, can you be a salt and light to Somerset? No. He says you are salt. You are light. It is who you are. Ephesians 5.8, Paul says that believers who were once in darkness are now light in the Lord. And he follows that by saying, walk as children of light. Be who you are. Walk, live according to who you are. Your identity as a believer is that you are sought and you are light. So that's who we are. That's how we're called to live. Now, what this does is it, it tells us an important truth. It guards us against thinking that, you know what, the world's basically good. Because if he says, listen, you're salt of the earth, you're, you're light of the earth. If that's who you are, why does the world need salt and light? Because it's good? No. The, the world is not essentially good. The world needs us as salt. Why? Because the world is rotting in sin and lacking in godliness. The world needs us as light. Why? Because the world is blinded by darkness. It's walking in darkness. It's deceived by darkness. You are the salt. You are the light, believer. Now, we have to stop here. Because there's certainly people in here that don't follow Christ. We know, I know some of you in here are sitting here, you're not a Christian, you're not a believer. And so the request and the appeal would be, would you come to Christ today and join us as salt and light, that is not who you are right now. It just isn't. That's not your identity. Your identity in Christ is salt and light, but your identity outside of Christ is that you're a child of wrath. You're walking in darkness. And as we go, the next three words mean nothing to you. They mean nothing to you. So, so the question is, will you come to a point where your identity is transformed by the grace of God? Will you confess Christ today? Will you follow him today? Don't you see the darkness of the world you live in? Don't, don't you see how it's rotting, it's progressively getting worse and worse and worse? One of my kids this week, we're going down the road, and he said, when do you think Jesus is coming back, Dad? I said, I don't know. I don't know. I said, all I know is that we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. That's all I know for sure. And he said, don't you think it's just getting worse and worse, isn't it? I said, it is. It sure is. I said, but the Lord told us that was going to happen, though, didn't he? Yeah, he did, Dad. So it just affirms what God's taught us. Don't you see that, unbeliever? Don't you see that, looking about our culture and all the things, all the advances we may have? But yet, in all the technological advances and all the, the things that we have before us, 
we see it continuing to spiral and get worse and worse and worse. You need Christ. You need the light. You need him. Listen, John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, listen, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you no longer will walk in darkness. But you will have, you will possess, you will obtain the light of life. Will you follow Christ today? Will you trust him? Will you repent? Will you believe in this one who in John 1, 9, it says he's the true light that enlightens every man. He is the light that's come into the world that the darkness could not apprehend, could not comprehend. Will you follow this one? Will you submit your life to, Colossians, to Jesus Christ who in Colossians 1, 13, Paul describes Jesus as the one who transfers us out of the domain of darkness and into his light into his kingdom? Will you follow Christ? Will you repent and turn from your sinfulness and turn to Christ today? The one who calls us out of darkness and, and Peter describes it into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9. He calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Will you turn? Will you turn today from sinful, darkened living and turn to Christ? Why not? Why not is the appeal. That's the question. Will you respond today to the grace of God that's been set on display through the cross? That we've beheld his glory. We've beheld his love displayed on the cross. Will you continue to deny the light of the world and live in darkness? So The first word is identity. The second word I want you to look at today, the second word is engage. The second word is engage. What does Jesus say? Look in verse 13. He says, you're the salt of what? Of the earth. Verse 14, you're the, the light of what? The world. You're the salt of the world, the earth. You are intended to engage your culture. He doesn't say you're the salt of your church family. Listen, you need to really come in and you need to just shine brightly as light there at Grace Baptist. When you're there gathered together, Boy, there should be no one like you. You should really just impact them. No, he says, you're the salt of the world. It's a calling to engage the culture. It's the context. He says, you're salt. What are you salt to? The world. You're light. Where are you, the light? The earth. That's the context in which we live. Now, let me, I'm going to tell you some things that you already know. But these are going to put numbers to them. Think about the world we live in. Where 74% of adults online use social networking sites. It's a, it's a technological world. Where 55% of Americans support same-sex marriage. If you just survey 18 to 29-year-olds, it's 78%. 22% of married adults have been unfaithful. 37% of Americans gather for worship weekly. Just 37%. Oh, everybody goes to church. Maybe not. 62% of millennials, that's those of you born after 1981. So 62% of millennials have never read the Bible. 62%. Never even read it. 
You know the top four ways that millennials describe the Bible? Story, mythology, is symbolic, it's a fairy tale. So this thing that we gather to hear right now, this book that's the authority in our lives, this book that is the word of the living God, that makes us wise unto salvation, that's inspired by God, and equips us for every good work, as seen by those in our culture as a fairy tale, as a story, as mere symbolism. 71% of people in our country believe that a person must contribute his own effort to salvation. Almost three out of four people that you encounter believe that it's contingent upon their works along with Christ's grace or their works alone. 71%. That's the, that's the culture that we live in. Sinclair Ferguson says that, that few things are more important for the Christian in this world than to realize the extent of its darkness. I really don't think I told you anything new just then with all those statistics. You may not have known the numbers. I think you kind of went, yeah, yeah. And numbers can go, ooh, didn't realize it was that high. Ooh, wow. Ooh. But you know, you know the culture that we live in. In, in my house, we have two small children, and they've discovered the fine art of tattletelling. And they're getting really good at it. I mean, it's a, it's a skill that they're honing every day. And, you know, it, it's constant. The one of them comes in and says, Dad, Avery said this. Ooh. Dad, Kendall punched me in the nose. Kendall's are more physical, and Avery's more of a verbal. They, they constantly, man, this, this, they come in, what are they doing? They're saying, Dad, she did that. Here's the question. Would we be closer to a tattletale of our culture? Or are we engaging our culture? I think it's easy, very easy, for us to slip into a point where we say, well, God... They believe in same-sex marriage. God, they're, they're aborting children. Well, they don't even read the Bible. They're, guys, have you seen their, what they're doing? And it's almost like we become these doctrinally sound, conservative tattletales. And it's easy to stand up here and to, to throw a stone and to say, hey, they're doing this. And they're doing that. It's easy to find those, those percentages and, and search them and find good, good surveys and, and good little bits for sermons. And the question stands the same for me. Am I just in here as a tattletale? Am I just in here saying, hey, this is what they're doing? Or am I engaging culture? I know that you live in culture. Are you engaging it? Are, are you are you coming to a point of contact with it in which you are being who you are, salt and light? I, I'm assuming that all of you agree and you, you have a, a common stance in here that we're not call, called to a monastery. 
We're not called to a monastic life where we completely withdraw. That's why we're here. We still live in the world. But do we live in it in such a way that we engage it? I think some of us have that, that kind of tattletale mentality where we sit back and we look and we think about how bad it is. And that's the extent of it. That's where we leave it. A, a few weeks ago, I came across an article entitled, Simple Ways Your Church Can Reach and Keep Millennials. Now, this is important because millennials are, are all around us. Anybody that's born after 81, this is what it's focused on. But I think he, the, the author here, uh, Dean and Sarah, he, he has two observations I think are important for all of us that, that we can learn from. He says that, you know, there's, there's two types of culturally engaged people. I think some of us, when I say, are you a tattletale, you, you sit back and you're like me and you go, no, I'm not a tattletale. I mean, I, I'm trying to engage my culture. And he, he takes and he says, okay, well, if that's the case, if we're engaging culture, if you say, yeah, I'm engaging culture, he says, well, why are we not reaching more millennials? And when we do reach them, why, why oftentimes does the church not keep them? Why, why, why do they not hold on to them? Why do we see millennials come to the church and then leave? Or why do we see so few coming into churches across America? He says that there's two types of culturally engaged people. He says one would be known as the, the savvy, the savvy millennial or the, the culturally savvy person. It's the, the person who's kind of the, the techno geek. They dress in the latest fads, the latest clothes. They, they join all the causes. They cry out for them. They cry out against the holy huddle of the church. Hey, you don't stay in your holy huddle. You got to go out and engage the culture and reach the world. And they've got everything. They've got the, the latest phones and everything's in their pocket. And man, they are, they are in tune with the culture. All the music, they know it. They know all the fringe bands that you've never heard of. But man, they're YouTube sensations. But a lot of times he says that, that, that this person here, they, they don't truly engage people and they don't really have a concern for Great Commission living where it hits the streets, where they truly walk out and they just engage people. So they're engaged with culture, but not with the people who live in the culture. So that would be the culturally savvy person, the techno-savvy person. Here's the second one. He calls them gospel-centered. Gospel-centered. Now, this is a pretty good terminology. We like that, don't we? Gospel-centered. Hey, I'm gospel-centered. I like the gospel. We love the gospel. The gospel is by which we've been saved. Man, it's good to be gospel-centered. He says, listen, these are the doctrinally sound believers. They critique books. They live on podcasts. They listen to the latest sermons. They know who all the dynamic preachers of today are. They debate theology. And they fill social media with things and talk of of being missional. And I mean, everything looks great, but yet their, their life is really just divorced of truly engaging people again. It's all out there, and they're standing for the gospel, and they're standing for Christ, but they're not just involved in making disciples, being salt, and being light. They're missing people. I, I think the, the proper thing is that we, we see the problems and we see the darkness. We see the corrosion of sin. We understand our identity and we engage it. The, the, the part of the pastoral prayer, Jesus' pastoral prayer that, that Scott read, where, where Jesus says, listen, there, I, I, I'm praying for my, my disciples and those who, who, would, who would come to know me through their testimony. And he prays for us. And he says, I, 
they're, they're not of the world. They're, they're, they're not of the world, he says. But I, I've called them into the world. I'm not taking them out. Lord, Father, please don't take them out of the world. I, I don't want them just to be removed. I, I want them to be in the world. They're not of the world, just like I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. And send them out. Just like you sent me, I'm sending them out. What's he talking about? He's talking about this idea that, that we are not of the world, but we live in the world, and we are to be salt, we are to be light, we are to engage our culture for the sake of Christ. He prayed that for us. He says, guard them from the evil one. Protect them, sanctify them by your word, by your truth. But don't just snatch them out of it. Leave them there. Send them forth as salt, as light. Here's the third word. So first, we know our identity. Second, we see that as salt and light, we're called to engage. The third word is difference. Difference. Because the reality is, if we engage our culture in the way that God's called us to engage it, then we will make a difference for Christ. What's the common trait of both salt and light? They both make a difference, don't they? They, they both make a difference. Whatever context they find themselves in, they make a difference. Neither one of them blends with where they are. It just doesn't. Salt and light both make a difference. Salt and light influences what they're around. Think about them for a minute. Salt, salt has all kinds of positive characteristics, and you've probably heard sermons about, well, when Jesus said we're the salt of the earth, it means that, that uh, we are to preserve society and because salt preserves and salt flavors, so we're to, to flavor our culture with grace and and salt was even symbolic of friendship. And there were times when it was symbolic of, of, of purity. And it, it creates thirst when you have salt. It makes you thirsty. I have nothing wrong with those things. I, I, I would certainly allow for Jesus having that in, in, the, in the back of his mind. Or even using that. And maybe, maybe say, hey, here, you're salt of the earth. So that they, they would be thinking of these things. Those common usages of salt. The people certainly were thinking of those. I think the bottom line that we need to understand is that, that salt just doesn't blend in. It, it influences what it's around. So as God's people, we're to preserve the creation. We're to preserve His grace. We're to, to flavor it. We're to create a thirst for God. We're to flavor our culture with a, with a, a pinch of grace. That, that people know that we're different. Why? Because we're salt. And you sprinkle just a little salt in your plate at lunch today, and you're going to know it's there, won't you? Do your coworkers know you're there? Do your peers at school know? Does your family know? Are you salt? Think about light. Light changes and influences everything around it, doesn't it? You, you, don't, you can't hide light. You can't overcome light with darkness. You can't flip on a flash dark. Right? It doesn't happen. How do you get rid of light? Turn it off. If light's there, dark cannot overcome it. You're the light of the world. Light reveals what is wrong. But it doesn't just reveal, does it? It also produces what is righteous and true. It brings life. Life needs light, doesn't it? You study science, you know that. Life needs light. 
Life does not happen in darkness. You are the light of the world. And light is not given to you just to live by. It's given to shine forth. So you make a difference. This is the concern that Jesus has right here. Is this idea of making a difference. Look at what he says. He says, you're the salt of the earth in verse 13. He says, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And he says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Does anyone, nor does anyone, light a lamp and put it under a basket? But on the lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus says, you are salt and you are light. Don't lose who you are. Don't lose your identity. Don't become tasteless. Don't put a barrel over the light. How does, how does this happen? How does this happen? Let me give you just five ways I think that we lose our saltiness or we put a bucket over our light. Here's the first way. Is when culture engages us more than we engage culture. Or when, you could say when culture influences us more than we influence culture. So that's an important thing we need to consider. Who's influencing who? Is, is culture have a greater influence on me, my worldview, the way I approach things, the way I handle my family, the way I handle my finances, the way I handle my time, my schedule? Or do I have a greater influence on the culture around me? Do I bring flavor to the culture around me? Do I show forth light to the culture around me? There's a second way. Then we lose our saltiness or we, we hide our light by a bucket when we live in habitual, unrepentant sin. When there's just sin that we continue to fall to and we continue to go after. And we ignore the admonition of John that says if we confess our sin to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Instead, we just live there. We just stay there. And as we do, we just lose that saltiness. We hide that light. The third way is just simple complacency. When we grow complacent in our walk with the Lord, Pastor Bill dealt with this somewhat last week. But when we grow complacent and we just kind of have this sense of, of apathy creep in and, well, okay, no big deal. We start going through the motions and we get in this rut. And all of a sudden we just start blending in, blending in, blending in. Or we fail to spend time with the Lord, but we just fill our time with mind-numbing and life-muting entertainment. I, I'm not speaking out against you should never watch TV or a ball game. But if you do that at the detriment of time with the Lord, you need to look at your life. You need to look and say, God, is that causing me to lose my saltiness in the world around me? That I'm just kind of just brain dead watching uh, TV. And yet I never spend time in your word. Do you spend time with the Lord? On a consistent basis, are you opening up Scripture and, and reading it and studying it and growing in the Lord? Is He sanctifying you by His truth? 
Or is your free time spent entertaining yourself? The last one I would say is when we allow busyness of life just to drive away the things of the Lord. We become so busy and our schedules just drive us to where we don't grow in Christ. We don't sit at the foot of the cross and pray and seek the Lord and seek His Word. We're just trying to get from scheduled item to scheduled item to place to place. And it just robs us. It robs us. Are you making a difference around you? Here's the last word. The last word is glory. You have influence, engage, difference, and glory. In verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God's glory is the ultimate purpose. It's the ultimate purpose. And if you flip over to 6.1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. His concern is, listen, don't just be religious for the sake of being religious. That's not going to get you anywhere. He says, don't, don't just try to get approval. Don't just try to get people to see you and see how religious you are. Don't do it for men. But here he says, listen, let your light shine. Practice good deeds. Let's, let them see. Let men see your good works. Let them see it. Let, let them see the things that you're doing. Let them see the way you're living for Christ. Why? So that they would praise your Father and give glory to Him. Philippians 2.15, Paul says that, that we're to live as lights in the world. We're to live as lights in the world. Peter wrote in, in 1 Peter, he says to, to keep our behavior excellent among the lost. Why? So that they might glorify God. How, how are we living? Are we walking as children in light? Are we walking as salt? Are we making a difference? Are we engaging culture in such a way that it, is, it sees that we're children of, of God? We, we walk on our campus. Does anyone know that you're a follower of Christ outside of the fact that you go to youth group on Wednesday night? Does anyone know you're a follower of Christ in your business outside of the fact that you're sitting here this morning and not on the clock? How are you serving those around you? What are you doing to make Christ known? Real quick. Here's some practical ways to engage your culture and to make a difference. Practical ways in your speech. The first one will be in your speech. Are, are you a voice of grace and encouragement? Or are you a voice of gossip and lies and vulgarity? Think about the words you say. How are they shining forth light? Think about work. Some practical ways at work. Perhaps you could be the employee who arrives early, works harder, and stays late. Why? Because you're a workaholic? No. Am I saying to stay till 9 and get there at 4 a.m.? No. Maybe it's five minutes early, five minutes late. Maybe it's the one who goes to the boss and encourages them. Be the one that does not rob your employer of time and resources. Because there's plenty that do. Be a light your co-workers simple ways bring something to work 
Why would you do that? Why would you bring coffee and donuts this morning? Oh, I just did. Be a light. What about your family? What about your family? Do you display God at home? Is it an atmosphere of grace under your roof? Do your children and does your spouse see a love, an abiding love for Christ from you? What about in the community? Perhaps you could be the best neighbor on the block. You serve others. You go and rake your neighbor's leaves or maybe you bake some bread. And when you bake bread, you bake an extra loaf and you take it down to the neighbor. Because you like them and get along and love how they take care of their yard. No. You hate all those things. Well, maybe not them, but their yard is like mine. It's filled with dandelions and they blow over into your yard and you have to pay extra money to get rid of them. Right? You can still show the love of Christ to them. Take them a loaf of bread. Invite them to come with you here or to come and eat dinner or have soup. Be a good neighbor. What about social media? What about social media? We light up social media with all kinds of funny pictures and things that happen and quotes and scores of ball games. Do we ever light up social media with the gospel? Do we ever share a testimony on Twitter or on Facebook? Do we ever display the gospel on Instagram? How do, we, how do we take the gospel and make it known on social media? And finally, what about friendships? Are you a faithful, a loyal friend? Are you patient with your friends? Do you rejoice when they get the promotion that you're hoping to get? Or do you get angry and resentful of that? Do you encourage them? Do you come alongside them when they're going through a hard day and just pray for them? How are you being salt and light in the place that God has placed you? How are you engaging culture in a way that's making a difference? If today is the final number of your days, what gap or hole is left tomorrow? If you're gone, you don't show up at work, does it make any difference? Are you salt and light? Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. You are God and you are God alone. There's no one like you. Lord Jesus, we know and we have heard the testimony that you are light of the world. And God, we know that you give light to those who walk in you. And so God, I pray for those today who do not know you. And I pray that God, you would open their eyes. That they would respond in repentance and faith. That you would call them out of darkness into marvelous light. And that they would have the light of Christ in them. God, I pray that you would convict 
us who are yours that are followers of you in areas where we have lost our saltiness. Perhaps too much of the world has come in and just diluted our saltiness. Or perhaps sin in our lives or our schedules or whatever it might be are just clouded and covered our light. God, show us those things. And give us the humility, the trust in you, to turn to you and abide in you, that we would walk as salt and light among our culture. And we commit this time to you, our faithful God. In his name we pray. Amen.